0: One. Guys, welcome back to the Built for Life podcast. It's episode number 13, I think. Um, absolutely buzzing to be here. Jen and I always want to make sure that we are keeping this content as relevant as possible. So we actually put out a question box yesterday on Instagram and we get so many fucking questions, but it did have a similar theme to it. And it's something that we work with so much within the Built for Life program. And it's not only clients that come to us. Clients are going to be struggling with this elsewhere. This is such a common problem within modern culture that is almost normalized because food is so accessible and it's basically emotionally eaten. And you guys who have listened for a prolonged period of time will understand that both Jen and I have had our own run-ins with disordered eating, binge eating disorders and so on and so forth. So I'm actually going to pass over to Jen initially to read out this question that she received. And then we're going to go into the nitty gritty details from different perspectives to kind of give you an insight into our own experiences in a little bit more depth but also how we work with clients that are showing signs of disordered eating patterns to ensure that we can get them out of it in a safe manner and allow them to actually start focusing on the progress that they're making from a fat loss perspective. Because what we see all the time is that people will come to us with these disordered eating tendencies and be so frustrated that they're not losing the amount of weight that they used to on the restrictive um, patterns that they had. So like the binge restrict cycle, the purging. And what we want to do is show you how life can be different, even though the initial stages of laying those foundations can be insanely frustrating. And we work with so many people who are frustrated for the first maybe three, four months working with us, but then they start to really gather some momentum, build new evidence for how they can live their life, and then go on to actually losing weight in a healthier and more sustainable way that gives them the confidence, the trust in themselves, and the ability to execute it continuously over time if they were to ever gain any form of weight again, which in all honesty, you will. But on a far lower level, as we've discussed in previous podcasts, it's usually maybe four five, six pounds you stay in that kind of small um, barrier of weight gain because you enjoy your life with it. So we want to give you a bit of an insight into this because we know that it's such a, a red hot subject, let's say. And I'm going to hand over to Jen to read out this question.
1: Thank you. So, <clears throat> like Mark said, we both kind of got most of the questions we, we were asked were kind of of this similar nature. So we thought instead of doing like a disjointed podcast with like hundreds of random questions, <laughs> we would go with kind of what the majority um, were asking us. So um, we actually received this question from a very good friend of mine who wants to know how we both dealt with our own um, recovery from binge eating disorders initially um, we actually have a few questions within the question but I'm thinking that's maybe a good place for us to start um, like our personal experience what tools did we use to help and where our methods different from one another in terms of how we recovered as individuals from binge eating disorder
0: yeah I think they will both be different as we kind of discussed before this podcast do you want me to go first or do you want to go first yeah you go for it I'll go first so, like we were kind of talking before this podcast, yours seems to be a bit more emotional. Mine was probably a little bit more conditional, but there was emotion thrown in there as well. But I definitely think the conditions of how I entered that binge eating disorder to start with, the the foundation of it was emotional. But then the conditions kind of were the were the fucking lighter to the fire. Oh, the petrol to the fire, the piss yeah. to the fire. Oh. <laughs> the fuel. Oh obviously if you've listened to this before like my eating disorder came purely and mainly from the emotions that i had surrounding who i was as a person feeling lost feeling very insecure in myself feeling like i had to be validated feeling as though i never really fit in feeling as if i was always scared to be honest um i think living up and living up sorry growing up and living in a a household where you've got a father figure who's very manly very aggressive um, and then when you're grown up and you're getting bullied and you're being picked on and you're being told to stand up for yourself, I think it's so appropriate to be open and honest, especially as like a male in these in these days, or this, this generation, where I knew that I was never going to be able to live up to the hardened figure that I perceived my dad to be. Um, when he was younger, he was like part of different gangs and always getting into a lot of fights. He's got a lot of scars. Um, And he would often tell these stories to us when he was drunk, when we were younger and when we were kind of grown up and we were going through our teenage years. But obviously as well, with my dad being that kind of very authoritative figure, it did make me fearful of authority. People bullied me, people fucking picking on me because I knew that I couldn't stand up to my dad when he was like being aggressive and being that authoritative figure. So to then be going through this kind of like traumatic upbringing not by my parents but more so from the environment and the people around me the kids that were picking on me like physically assaulting me and so on and so forth I would then freeze and find it very difficult to stand up for myself but then I'd go home and I'd get a fucking bunch of shit from my dad (laughs) you know what I mean so I always was scared that I wasn't strong enough you know I was always scared that I wasn't aggressive enough because I was always a pretty kind-hearted soul and any fights I started to get into as I grew up is because I was trying to lean into that fear more and show that I was like worthy of being a strong person because that's kind of what you perceive it to be when you're being told that you need to stand up for yourself on a consecutive level so that was always like a big big fear of mine and it always used to get exploited massively in different occasions very unwarranted occasions some of my friends still to this day say Sometimes we just firmly believe you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like that stuff was very provoked, not by you, but just randomly for no reason. So I started to realize that I needed to try and find a way to feel more worthy and feel more strong in other areas and to be more validated in other areas. Because I think subconsciously from a child's perspective, you're always trying to find that validity from your parents to some degree. And I actually appreciate now looking back what my dad gave me, because I think in the moment, it's so hurtful and so difficult to take. Like there was even times where he was extremely truthful with me. I I was a I was a goalkeeper when I first started playing football. When I got picked up for a uh, Hamilton Aggies, and I remember he said to me one day, like you're never going to be a goalkeeper. You're never going to make it. And it hurt me at the time, right? But now looking back, I'm like he probably seen something in me which was the fear. It was the doubt. It was the insecurity. It was the lack of. It was the lack of strength. I don't think he was saying it to be horrible and to put me down. I think he was saying it to maybe save me from disappointment further down the line. And all of these things do hurt, but the more you mature and the more intelligent you become with your emotions, you start to realize that people probably mean things in a different way. You don't have to hold on to them or see yourself as a failure or see yourself as someone who's not worthy of the success. So I started to look at different ways in which I could kind of prove not only maybe my dad wrong, but everyone else wrong about the person I was because people viewed me in a very different way. I had my close friends that saw me for who I was behind closed doors, but then they also seen this other side of me of someone who was trying to live up to the expectation of being stronger, being more aggressive, like, but channeled in a totally different way because the only way that I kind of knew that I could do that would, would potentially be through violence. So I finally found that thing for me that gave me it, which was, like, working in my body. People were giving me that validation. People were giving me that sense of, like, security, like you are different, you are strong, like you're able to go the distance in this area than other people um, around you. And people are recognizing that. People are like showing you that level of status that you've always wanted because you've never been a standout for anything. So I then decided to go through, obviously the, the bodybuilding prep. And part of that as well was to build my, my profile and my reputation from a business perspective. um. But I don't think prior to going through the process, I realized or was aware enough of the damages that could be brought with it from an emotional standpoint. I just thought, well, if I can take it this far already and be in decent enough shape, if I totally push the barrier, then it's just going to bring me more validation. It's just going to bring me more strength. It's just going to bring me a higher level of status and so on and so forth. So I went through the whole process. I stepped on stage, as you guys will know from listening to this podcast, was told no, um, when I really did believe that I had something special in comparison to some of the other guys I was on the stage with. And that just fucking hit me like a ton of bricks. So it's like this emotional um, foundation was totally rocked by the conditions of which I entered into under the restrictive process of trying to lose body fat and get into shape. And I think that this is the thing, like so many people have these underpinning emotional issues that they go into these dieting processes, whether that be Scottish slimmers, Weight Watchers, slimming world whether they go on to these challenges these like six eight 12 week challenges and massively restrict and it doesn't mean that you can't achieve the goal it's just that the approach that you've used and the conditions you're under when you're going after that goal is not aligned with your ability right now to be able to manage yourself emotionally and who you believe yourself to be as a person so my process of getting out of it i was i'm going to be completely honest here I was never diagnosed with a binge eating disorder, but I know enough about it that I had a binge eating disorder, right? And many people will go die undiagnosed, but I was a very stubborn fucker. And I was like, and it's probably something my dad did teach me. If I got myself into this, I can get myself out of it. And it probably took longer. Like I was now having the awareness of working with different coaches, um, being coached by different coaches and also coaching coaches and coaching clients. I'm now well aware that I could have saved myself for a lot of time, a lot of heartache, a lot of energy by actually reaching out for help at that time which I would have done differently if I could now go back but I was just being stubborn and I was like I can work out of this on my own I can get out of it on my own so there's a few things that I started to do differently started looking at accepting myself and my body for where it was regardless of how I looked so obviously I went from being insanely fucking ripped stepping on stage fake tanned, all of that sort of stuff to being like three stone fucking overweight from where I was at that point Um, so I used to wear a hoodie around the gym regardless of fucking what it was outside I would wear a hoodie like weather wise it could be 32 degree heat in the fucking summer and I would wear a hoodie with my hood up in the gym with fucking joggies on and I would be sweating my pan in and people would think oh he's just fucking getting his head down and working hard when really I was just trying to hide myself and cover up so these are a few things that are proven to help. Body acceptance so I started to go to the gym in just a t-shirt and shorts and you'll hear women that talk about going to the gym in shorts, like wear the fucking shorts, wear the sports bra, do it if you want to do it. Um, It's daunting to start with, like when you feel so insecure within your body. But when you start to do it, you start to realize there's nothing to be fearful of. No one's looking at you, no one's judging you, no one's um passing comment on you. It's all inside your head. That is your own fear. So I started doing that. Another thing that I started doing as well, which I've recommended to a lot of people that we worked with that fall into the similar, similar bracket, is actually spending a certain amount of time per day naked, right? And I think people very often, like, completely bypass this one. And I'll ask people who struggle with disordered eating tendencies, like, how much time do you spend on a daily basis naked? And they're like, no, come out of the shower, put the towel on, straighten in my clothes like if there's any opportunity for me to be out of my comfort zone and have to look at my body have to sit there have to see my rolls of fat have to see my legs my cellulite whatever it may be it's like i'm just not doing it i will not spend any time naked and i'm like okay well that is the fear so that's where you have to put yourself so i need you to start small spend three minutes naked a day spend four minutes naked a day five eight minutes naked a day and what's going to start to happen is you're going to build up that confidence to be in your own skin but also you have to sit with your thoughts during that time so you need to be able to speak up and speak against the kind of negative thoughts that you're going to start to feel overcome you so you're going to start to say this is disgusting. I look like a fucking beached whale. Um, I'm so out of shape. Like you, you might compare yourself to where you used to be. Um, look at the state of my thighs. Look at the state of my arms. Like this can happen for people not only overweight, but people who are also skinny as well. That the struggle with disorder eating as well. Judge themselves for not being muscular enough, not being fit enough, not being strong enough. And you really need to use what we would describe as that that kind of adaptive form of emotional practice to speak back more positively to the negative comments you're giving yourself because I spoke about this in my Instagram stories a couple of weeks ago if anyone did listen and you've got these two forms of emotional practice. Number one, maladaptive, which most people do, which is like experimentally avoid. So you'll just like block out your head. So you won't see yourself naked. You won't look at your body. You won't um consider what else your body can do for you. And um, because you know if you start to think about what your body is, you're just going to fundamentally focus on the ornamental value of it. So you're just going to fucking completely Um, push it out of your mind or you'll ruminate. So you'll ruminate about the food you ate because that's what's made you fat. You're gonna ruminate about the exercise you're not doing because it's made you fat. You're gonna think about the weight sessions you didn't do. That's why you're fucking skinny fat, whatever it may be. But then on the flip side, you've got, which is totally within your control, the adaptive forms, which is mindfulness. So paying attention non-judgmentally to the situation. So instead of sitting in like that pain and those negative comments, be more mindful, be a little, little bit less judgmental and be like, okay, well, what are some of the things that I'm maybe not considering here that I could look at my body for, like the instrumental value, or instead of just being so negative towards my body, what responsibility can I take here for the way that I'm treating it? All of these things through mindfulness. Um also problem solving. So like when you're sitting in that discomfort as well, problem solving is problem solving, it's finding a new solution to a problem. So it's like, what else could I be doing here? Because people that are stuck in that cycle are always just stuck in that cycle. They don't consider that anything else is a possibility. It's all that they know. Binge, restrict, purge, whatever it may be. Um, and then finally reappraisal, which is my favorite. So it's a positive interpretation of a negative situation to try and relieve stress. So if you could have a, and this is something that you say very often, if you could have a different assumption in comparison to the assumption you have that's more positive, it's still an assumption. So why can the more positive one not be true? So I just started to, to believe the more positive assumption of what I was telling myself. I would tell myself like, and this is how I probably built self-belief, like you can do this, you can get through this, you can look the way that you want to, you can control your food intake. You, you you do not have to binge at the weekends. You do not have to make those choices. Those were the assumptions I was making. And even though I didn't have evidence for it, I was like, okay, well, let's give that go. <laughs> and I started doing these things on repeat. So it was that form of like emotional practice that helped me, but also detached myself from bad relationships, bad friendships that didn't serve me. I didn't drink as much. I wouldn't go to restaurants that essentially I knew I couldn't control myself in. I would start small. I would show myself I can go to the shops and not just pick up everything and fill my basket with hundreds of sweets and crisps. I would go in and just buy one thing and I'd be like, well, there you go. There's evidence that you can just buy one thing. And I would focus on chewing that food. I'd be like, okay, well, I want you to be able to, before you finish this this bite, I want you to chew it 20 times to show yourself that you're doing this for enjoyment. Instead of doing it for just an emotional release, because you don't enjoy anything when you're doing it for an emotional release. You don't recall the taste of the food, the moisture of the food, how much you enjoyed it. Um, So those are some of the things I started to do. I just really built an environment. That kept me clear of mind and reduced a lot of the chaos that was going on around me because these things emotionally are amplified by the drama in your life the toxicity in your life how in demand you are in your life so i would spend time off my phone i would become more uncontactable i would switch my phone off since saturday night so i wasn't distracted by people saying oh let's go out i would want that freedom of mind if the phone was off and it was on airplane mode then i'm not receiving that text it's not then becoming chaotic like and triggering thoughts in me of like i'm isolating myself i wanted the status i wanted the validation like those thoughts weren't even coming into my mind because i would made a deal with myself like you cannot do that until you get yourself to a position where you can rely solely on yourself to make the right decisions for your own well-being and i probably spent about six months totally isolating myself from people but improving my relationship of, with food and that it wasn't i was isolating myself and i wasn't going out to restaurants i wasn't going out and doing things i was going to restaurants alone. <laughs> I was going to the pictures a morning, and showing myself I didn't have to buy the large popcorn, have the pick and mix, have the fucking hot food. It was like, okay, can you go and get a controlled pick and mix from Sainsbury's beforehand? the small one, go in, enjoy it. Before I would finish the sweets before the movie, and I would go in with a goal of like, make these last to mid movie, at least And I would into the movie, make them last, show yourself you can do it. And then once I started to build up that trust and that evidence, things just started to become more automatic, like they all do from a habitual perspective. So I realized i just fucking went off on one there, but hopefully that was helpful. I
1: loved that. absolutely loved that because I think sometimes it's hard when you reflect back. It's hard to remember, like, what are all the different things? What are all the different parts of the puzzle that have added up to where I find myself now? But I think there's so many things, like tools that you shared with me, obviously, like from your expertise on this, but also your own experience, um, that worked really, really well for me too, and I think like when I think back to, I, I do think I still have, I'm still improving my relationship with food, but I definitely don't binge eat anymore. Yeah. Um, because I would say I overeat now, but I never binge to the scale that I that I would before. Um, because it's just I just don't find it enjoyable anymore. Before it used to be really enjoyable up until a certain threshold point. Um, whereas now it's almost like the threshold point of enjoyment gets lower and lower and lower and lower um, to the point where it it does just become overeaten um, really and I think now I think I'm just a lot quicker at figuring out why I've overeaten you know so I think before it was very much my binge eating used to really happen from a place of like numbness it was almost like this unconscious dissociative state and I think that obviously that's really, really linked to trauma, basically. It's a really strong trauma response, but it, it wasn't just um it, it wasn't just, you know, as a result of like living with PTSD. Like my I can remember restricting my food intake from the age of like nine or ten. Um <clears throat> and that being the first time that I really decided that I wanted to be thinner. Yeah. Um, which is fucking like my niece's 10. Like the yeah. thought I've said this before, like the thought of Vivian thinking that she had to restrict her food intake makes me want to be physically sick. But when you really think about it in that context, you're like, Jesus Christ, like, because to you, it's you. But then when you really think about, like, because I've got her, I'm like, I can't actually get my head around that. Um
0: See, just before you go any further, actually, like that just reminded me of another thing. I used to look at um, pictures of myself when I was younger. Mm. Because I was like, it, it brings on a sense of like innocence. Like, right. like, see the thing, see if you don't have kids, right? This is a great tactic for you to use. Look at pictures of yourself, right? I remember I used to go into my Aunt Betty's house, um, who was my grand sister, and she would have pictures of like all the nieces, all the, all the nephews, like not just the nieces and nephews, the great nieces and nephews, for so, like us. So I remember even when I was like 17, going into her flat, I would see pictures of myself and I would actually be like, I would feel quite emotional. So I'd be like, I recognize this kid pure sweet, pure innocent, that was potentially at some points due to the things he was exposed to, was led down a different path and kind of lost himself. Like even when I was like 17, that was like my underlying thoughts and I could connect quite emotionally to him at that stage. So I used to actually have a baby picture in my room of me at like two or three years old. It was just like a wee thing that my gran had, I took after my gran died. And um, it was like a small picture frame, maybe like four or five inches big with like a small picture of me in it when I was like two or three. And I just kept that around and I used to look at it and I used to, in my mind, be like, you're doing this for him, not you. Because I think when you make it all about yourself as well, right now, it can be quite hard. But when you can actually see someone different, like a kid version of you, like a lot of parents go through this process with us because they're trying to be better for their kids and you can do the same for yourself. But if you're struggling to find that inspiration as an adult to do it for yourself, look back at who you were when you were a fucking innocent child and do it for them.
1: Yeah. 100% 100% It's so funny You should say that I've got one right here
0: She's um, pulled at the picture
1: <laughs> It's right here It sits on the wee table Behind me In my office It's just me and my dad And my wee sister um, I think I'm about 8 In the picture And it was Jean That said to me "Eight's the best age um, To kind of Like look at yourself And um, almost like separate adult you from child you. Yeah. So that's another thing that was really, really. It's so funny you should mention that because that's something that was that was so so helpful for me as well. Was um, when I was doing all the negative, all the critical thinking every single time. So I actually used to have this picture as my phone um wallpaper for a while. Yeah. So everything, every single time I was saying a negative thought towards myself, I had to look at the picture and imagine that I was saying it to that wee girl. And it really, really helped me to connect myself a lot more with adult me and child me, because jeans like it's a lot harder to look at a kid and say you're fucking disgusting. Um, so it's like it's just like like rebuilding that relationship with yourself. Um, that's so so crucial, and it does really separate you because you do see just the innocence, and you think, God, I would never say that to a child, but I am still that child within me, and that's who I'm speaking to. Um. So that is, that's a really, really powerful um, way, I think, of, of dealing with this. And I think it's funny because so much of my habits around food, similar to you, really learned in kind of childhood and behaviour. And I think, like, God bless my mum. Like, it wasn't her fault. My mum came from a repetitive cycle of fucking hating our body, diet culture. Like, I can distinctly remember in our house. Like And it's funny because as an adult, I've just followed these same patterns and cycles. That Christmas, we would just eat whatever we liked and Christmas was a pure eating event. Um, And we could eat, 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 eat. And then January came and it was strict, like where no eating. And then we'd have a wee bit of leeway and then we'd book the summer holiday. Right, summer holidays coming up. Because when we were really young, we didn't go abroad. I think the first time I went abroad, I think I was maybe nine I would have been maybe about like eight or nine and this was a big deal because it was the first time we just could I don't think we could afford to go abroad when I was really young I think I'd been abroad maybe once when I was like two or something um so this was a big deal because it was the first like family abroad holiday and um I can remember like I can remember being in changing rooms with my mum and I trying stuff on and god love her she just didn't like our body it was such a shame and so i've learned all of that right and the thing is is that my mum's not done anything wrong in this situation like this is the way the world was back then my mum if my mum knew that was going to have an impact on me and my sisters and our view of herself she would never have done it right we know now that's what was happening but like in reality and back in the day like this is the fucking 90s do you know what i mean like early 2000s like people didn't even know that this was that these kind of things were happening um so like i learned very quickly that you can eat whatever you like at christmas and then you can eat whatever you like in january and then you've got a summer holiday but you need to restrict yourself to get as much weight off as you possibly can and then you look great in your holiday and then you pile it all back on and you repeat that cycle and i just followed that cycle for like my whole fucking life and um i can remember like being bullied because i was chubby i was going through puberty. I wasn't like an overweight child or anything. Like if you see pictures of me now, like I was just about a chubby kid. Like as soon as I got through puberty, like I, I looked completely different. But um, I can remember going to high school and I was getting bullied because I was a fucking freak. Let's <laughs> <I can't, laughs> not fucking I have two bones about it. I was a total weird. I was a pure geek. Um, I kind of I did have friends, but I struggled with like the concept of friendship, like. My mum always says that people would like phone the house and like be like, is Jennifer coming out to play? And my mum would be like, there's people wanting to play with you. And I'd be like, no thanks, I'm quite happy fucking playing The Sims for 12 hours a day, leave me alone. So you're an adult <laughs> then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right, nothing's changed. Um, so I can remember going to high school, getting bullied for it, and that's when I really started like restricting my food intake. And the interesting thing is that at that early stage, I maybe would have been, I think I was 11 when I went to high school, um... So, I live in turning 12, and I think I can remember that was the first time in my life where I got validation for losing weight. So, I can remember, like, I used to eat a tuna salad sandwich. My mum still celebrates this to this day. She, my mum would never listen to this podcast, so that I know I can say these things, but we've a hard time. <laughs> my oh. sisters listen, though, so I'm like, they'll get it.
0: They'll <laughs> be cheerleading, man.
1: They will, but they listen, they're in the same boat. Um, so, I can remember being celebrated for eating a Nutri-Green bar, a tuna salad sandwich, an apple and a bottle of water every single day and nothing else, right? So I was tiny, and like, I've said this before in the podcast, but like, I do have a curvy build, all the women in my family do. So I couldn't understand that genetically, I was never not going to have, like, curves. I was never not going to have, like, hips and boobs and a bum, and it used to really piss me off because I was an emo so all the emo girls were like wearing like the dead low jeans and like chain our jeans and like band t-shirts. And it just looked daft on me because I had fucking hats. It used to wind me up so much. So I used to think, oh well, I can change the fucking genetic components of my body if I just restrict my food intake further, right? Didn't work. Um but i can remember being celebrated by family right everybody's had that moment in their life where their grandpa tells them you're looking fat hen right my grandpa would do it to all of us you're looking a little bit fat hen you're not go going to diet right grandparents can just get away with that shit. um but i can remember like my family my mum my aunties my friends like people saying to me, oh my god you look great and in that moment i learned okay when i'm thin i'm worth more and then I get highlights, and I went through puberty, and all of a sudden I started to become visible to boys, right? Which is all I'd ever wanted. All I wanted was a fucking boyfriend. I couldn't get a boyfriend because I was a fucking weirdo. Um, <laughs> I was cutting about as a VL, right? Remember that when you used to get oh me a thing, you know, yeah, show. we've aye, oh, t- and I was the classic. I kissed somebody at my grand's, but I had not kissed names at my grand's, but fucking blatant lie. I kissed somebody in holiday. I hadn't. <laughs> 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 so I was fucking desperate, desperate for a boyfriend. And um, finally became visible when a and got a boyfriend. And even then learned that when my appearance changed and when I looked good, I got validation and I got interest. So right in those formative years 14, 15, 16, I learned how you look is dictated that dictates your worth to other people. Yeah. So this then started the full story for the entirety of my life. Then around the age of kind of 15, 16, I was put in an antidepressant for the first time. And my weight skyrocketed. I say skyrocketed, that's an exaggeration. I think I put on a bit fucking two stone. But at that time, it felt like I'd gone from, like, normal weight to my 600-pound life overnight, right? Because that's what it feels like when you're that age. Um, and then this is around the time that I met my abuser as well. So I think there's that natural thing of when you first get into a relationship, you do put on a bit of weight because you're going out for dinner and you're going to the pictures and you're doing all those things that maybe you wouldn't do when you were on your own. <clears throat> and... Um, <clears throat> This was around about the time. I think, realistically, when I look back, the first kind of like three months of that relationship was just straight love bombing. Um, like, really just at the time you're so young and you think like, oh my God, it's just like the films. And now I look back and I'm like, oh, that was narcissistic abuse. <laughs> um, so like, I would say like six months in when I really reflect back, 46 months in is when the abuse actually started. Yep. For a long time, I could only pinpoint it to when we first started living together. And in therapy, I've been able to uncover that actually it, it started from the beginning. So I did actually endure that for about five and a half years. Um, and that obviously had a huge impact on how I then used food to soothe myself through difficulty. Yeah. Um, And that just became a part of my life from there. So I think there was a belief in me but when I left that I would just recover. And I think it's it's challenging because that relationship almost just fueled those beliefs that I already had within me. So he would restrict my food intake um quite actively when we lived together. Um so he would he would Make past comments, they would tell me I was fat and disgusting and ugly all the time so that only then reinforced the belief that I had around you have to look a certain way for validation then when I was in the relationship I did lose a huge chunk of weight like 2013 and didn't like that because then I was visible again so because I was visible to men again, and because I looked attractive, and I was going out, right? And I was also daft for a sunbed. I was on, do you remember those tannin injections? Melanotan? Okay, Melanotan I... I, oh, I loved a wee bit of Melanotan back in the day. There's a hilarious picture of me and my two sisters um, from that that time period. And they two are just like a normal skin colour, and I am mahogany. Like, a just it's Ridiculous. It's I look oh. like I've got 15 layers of fake tan on, right? It's ridiculous. You can only see like the whites of my eyes and my teeth. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, so I was feeling good in myself. Um, I was looking good and he didn't like that. So it almost became like, I now need to manipulate you back into where you were. So it's almost like I could never, I could never win. Um, and in my mind, I was thinking to myself, if I look better and I'm thinner, then he'll love me more. So if I'm thinner and I look better, then I'm safer. And actually it made me more unsafe. So then that just refueled the narrative for me that, okay, I need to gain weight to become more invisible so that I'm not then a threat to, to him. So then I'd gain weight, become more invisible to men again. And then he would still berate me. So like, it was just like I learned that like, no matter what, I'm out of control, essentially. Like I can't control the narrative. I can't control the outcome. Um, And then eventually I did leave. And then I thought oh, this is me, I'll be fine. Did the whole heartbreak diet thing where you just don't eat. Um, And actually, I think living in the recovery of the trauma. But it was after that that my weight ended up at its highest. I met Paul not long after, maybe like a year later. Um, Not met, I'd already, we knew each other we'd met before, but we got together, I would say, maybe like a year after or 10 months after. Um, And then over that period of time i just went on this constant like fluctuation battle like that's the only way i can describe it like and i did that battle for like 3 years i would say until i met you um this was the peak of my time around like the cambridge diet yeah and i feel like the cambridge diet honestly was quite formative for me because it was the most restrictive diet that i had ever done um, which meant it also got me really really fast results so like the it, the dopamine that would come from losing like 10 pounds in a week like it was fucking insane I was eating 450 calories a day like it was so dangerous and like I can remember what would happen was if you ate so it was all liquid and eventually over time you would build food back in so I would eat like a bar Um, but I remember one day eating actual food for a whole day and my stomach like I was up through the entire night doubled in pain just cramps like it was fucking horrific um so obviously like that whole thing just perpetuated throughout my whole life and what really really helped me when I met you was you prioritized and that's actually another one of the questions is about how we Um, help people to recover their relationship with food and what what really helped me with us working together was your priority was recovering my relationship with food first before we then tried to take any action off the back of it and the interesting thing is that I still seen results the action still happened right but the intention was I'm recovering your relationship with food before we start to look at any sort of, like, physical goals, physique goals. They were there in the background, but they weren't the focal point of the conversation. It, it was all about understanding my rituals, my routines, my structures around food, the shame and guilt, right? Like, i said this to you before, I still lie to you in check-ins all the time because I was so ashamed of myself that I just projected that onto you and the belief that you would make me feel, like, ashamed and guilty of myself. And I think eventually over time things like the wearing the thing that I always said I could never wear and I still catch myself doing this now like I, could, I can't wear that right It's fucking says who um and I think something that really sticks in my mind is um I'd, I'd actually lost a fair chunk of weight this would have been like maybe like May 2020 I think and I'd lost a good amount of weight by then and I still felt like I, I felt like a stranger in my own body because obviously my association in my mind was when you lose weight, you're unsafe. So so I had like a big breakthrough moment were you in the gym before they closed. And I know I've said this in the podcast before, but you you told me to th- like write down the reasons for staying the same. And I came to the realisation that, that I had that association in my mind that when I'm in a bigger body, I'm safe. I'm invisible to men um visit like it was almost like this ingrained thing that like even though he wasn't in my life it was like this is when you're at your safest. Um so once I got uh, like to my lowest weight and like years and years and years by that time in me, I was like I feel like a fucking stranger in my own body. And that's when the self-sabotage was starting to kick in and you kind of got me right down like if like everything that I say to myself and then I had to answer it as always my best friend that was saying those things to me so I had to write everything down like my constant recurring thoughts and I had to write down the answer as if it was my friend that was saying it and it just really got me to zoom out in my own head and my own beliefs and actually start to consider consider these things from a different perspective you know what I mean
0: that was so good and and listen it's, it's kind of like what we talked about on the bullshit beliefs episode. yeah, yeah. like you're actually trying to create a a different perspective to something and actually consider that something else could actually be true and i use your examples for that on so many webinars i delivered after that the double standard method is so good though because see the people that implement this stuff when i ask them to that the people that actually see a massive change in the relationship with food and the relationship they view themselves um and their actual relationships like and everything they do and i remember when you actually sent me over i was like this bitch actually wants to change (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> because 100%. she's went away and she's done exactly what I fucking asked that I do and it's when I ask people to do it they'll come back and they'll be like oh I can't think of anything and I'm like well you tell me that you, you tell yourself all the time horrible stuff mm-hmm. be honest about what that horrible stuff is it's not until you are open and honest that yeah. you'll understand and I think one of yours off the top of my head if I can remember right was like you're so bad at your job, everyone in your your career thinks you're a fraud, you're going to get caught out, you fucking annoy the life out of people. Like this was a, a thing that you would say to yourself often. And I can't remember exactly what your response was, but it was something that like a, a best friend would say. And it was something along the lines, I think of like, that's totally untrue. You could no evidence to support this or back this up. Just because you feel as if you annoy other people doesn't mean that you actually do. You could just be really good at your job and trying to, basically give perspectives on things that other people can't see just because people look at you a particular way or or potentially react to you in a particular way doesn't mean that they do not like you and that they judge you for what you've just said
1: 100 people don't care <laughs> it's the fundamental takeaway but what's really interesting for me is that once i started to go to therapy and actually work on my own self-efficacy and my own identity and my view of myself and challenge the beliefs that were driving this my relationship with food changed entirely because it became that food was a soothing mechanism for me it was a therapeutic outlet for me and I had no other therapeutic outlets so when times got hard food was always the default and don't get me wrong I'm still in recovery from this like I'm still very much learning food to not be the default and i think it's not something that just stops Mm. it's definitely a gradual process especially if you're someone like me who has lifelong disordered eating habits like this has existed as i was a fucking child like it's not going anywhere fast um and i've really only actively been working on it for like four years i'd say so it's it's going to take time but i think that there's something for me about the recognition that i had to heal from Everything that brought me to the point of food first, and I think that's maybe something that people miss quite a lot as they want to recover from the binge eating disorder without understanding what's driving the need to binge. Hundred percent. And I had to recover from the understanding of I used my weight as a validation tool, and I used my my how I looked. Not not that I craved validation from people, but I'm a people pleaser and I'm a compliant child and I like to be, I'm a teacher's pet, right? I like to be compliant with people, I like to make other people happy, I like to do what other people tell me, right? So that just then fed into my same narrative about food that... When I'm at a lower weight, people celebrate me more and I'm doing the right thing. So I'm driven by this instinctive need to do the right thing and not do anything wrong and not upset people. So that all links into that, right? And I think for me, yes, I had to recover from the trauma of an abusive relationship, but there was also so many things that I had learned about myself over the course of my life that seen now when I when i seek validation because seeking validation is not a bad thing now i seek validation from other areas so like in my job for example i fucking love my job right and i get so much like fulfillment from it and see now that i get so much fulfillment from my role in supporting other people i can see myself through the lens that they see me right this is why i can stand in front of rooms of 150 health and fitness coaches as a plus size woman and do it with ease because I know that for me in that moment my weight's not relevant I'm there because of my mind and my knowledge and, and what I know and my expertise so actually I'm not just there as that scared wee lassie. I'm there as somebody who has something meaningful to contribute and I think the more that I've started to see myself and the kind of person that I am and what I bring to the table and what I'm good at and really work on those things it's almost like I've not actually actively tried to recover from my binge eating disorder. I've tried to recover from everything that was fueling it, and it's and it's it's healing itself. Yeah,
0: which is exactly what you should do.
1: Yeah, and it's what we do in the programme.
0: And it's what we do in the programme. And you're so right, like what, what you've said in regards to why food was such a, a profound factor. And it was the same for me, because it does come back to like, what in the validation, not feeling like you fit in any or feeling as if like fucking people are judging you for the way that you look, people judging you for the way that you speak. I had that because I had my speech impediment as well. Like you just feel as if you want to be able to fit in and my kind of outlook. And it's funny how different people can utilize different frame of minds. My mindset was I want to fucking separate myself from every single person I know and find myself. Realistically, I want not it on the noise. I do want to spend time alone for the next six months because, and I realized upon reflection when I was a young kid, when I did have my speech impediment, when I was bullied, I would sit in my room fucking listening to James Blunt play, playing the fucking Gamecube. I used to play King Kong on the Gamecube. I remember my mum one Christmas, my mum and dad one Christmas had bought me a Gamecube and got me this, um, this King Kong game, and King Kong had just come out in the movies then. I think it was the one, it wasn't Nicole Kidman, and it wasn't. No. Can't remember the, Oh, the, is it not the, Naomi? Is it Naomi Watts? Yes, Naomi Watts. <clears throat> I always get the two mixed up. So that just came out in the cinema, um, and I got the game. It was a fucking well good game, like well good. And they bought me a new James Bond CD, but it was in my, my stocking. So I literally just sat listening to Back to Bedlam, the, the album, playing this game constantly. And it was over Christmas, so I was like, right, I don't have to go to school and fucking put up with shit. I don't have to go out and play and put up with shit you know, because it was snowing and all that outside, like I can just fucking be here and be myself. And I realized I'd lost that because there'd been so much fucking distraction going on. And I was like, I really need to go back to that place. And that does mean isolate myself. That does mean fucking cutting people off because that's actually where I thrived and where I enjoyed myself the most. But now you're living life differently. You go to the gym, you you work out, you, you, you love the way in which like pushing yourself makes you feel. So let's sprinkle a bit of that fun that you used to have on it, but this new stuff and see really what's possible alongside all the stuff you have to do to recover from like the binge eating stuff. And that was the thing, like I knew it wasn't going to be in six months time, I'm going to be ripped out my head again. I I knew that wasn't the case. I had enough awareness to know that this was going to be a steadier process. And ever since then, I've pretty, since recovering from it, I've kept myself in some of the best shapes I've been in, you know, for prolonged periods of time. Like I used to tell myself like, I can't be lean enough for any longer than a week. Do you know what I mean? Because it's always for a holiday. It's always for a show. And I fucking stayed super lean for like two years before I decided to start putting on weight again. And that weight phase I was trying to put on before when I was struggling with my binge eating was just fucking eat anything. The dirty bulk, you know what I mean? And I covered the dirty bulk up. Or I covered my, my eating disorder up by the dirty bulk, you know? So it's funny how people take different a different approach, but throughout that time I isolated myself. It was purely a case of, I want to prove myself here. I want to prove that I don't need anyone's validation. I want to prove that I don't need anyone to support me. I want to prove that I can fucking do this on my own. I want to prove that I'm as strong as I've always wanted to be in a different way, solving my own problems and coming up with solutions to things that potentially I've never really had the tools for. and that's going to prove that underlying belief of or it's going to discount that underlying belief of i'm not strong enough i'm not fucking aggressive enough to go after the things that i want Mm.
1: so that belief
0: very much did still drive it to an extent but i just used the energy in a different way does that make sense
1: yeah a hundred percent and i think it it makes me wonder then like from because i think i think anybody who listens to this regularly will know already that we do take a different. Um, approach to kind of fat loss and really just transformation because fat loss is like the, the least important part of all of this like it's important don't get me wrong but we very much treat it as a byproduct and an outcome as a result of other things um and I think from like your own experience um working with like hundreds and hundreds of people like me and the clients that we work with, do you believe that you have to heal your relationship with food before you can go on a fat loss journey?
0: Yes and no, right, for a few different reasons. Number one, I think, depending on your approach and how severe it is for, like, really improving your disordered eating tendencies, you can, as a byproduct still, lose the Mm. body fat without really trying. So for me, I started to lose the body fat pretty quickly because I'd identified the things that were causing me to binge. So it was like the nights out, staying out for like 48 hours at a time. It was not including foods throughout the week when I wanted them and just building everything up on a Sunday and just pigging out massively. I started to understand the patterns, even the things I wasn't doing anymore that I really enjoyed, like the fucking GameCube back in the day, they listening to the music, going to the movies on my own. I always felt like I had to do things with other people. And it was one of the most liberating things, actually, realizing I could do all these things on my own. But it was like that sense of being alone again because I always felt isolated when I was younger and then I always wanted friendships. I always wanted to be around people. I thought if I went places alone, people would judge me. And that would then counteract the validation that I needed because I'm being judged even further for who I am. So that was so liberating. And then the first time you do it, you realize it's not that bad. Then you just start to build up those wins for yourself. So I started to create that environment and strategies towards how I would approach my life because of what I was aware of having an impact. So it was a case of, I'm not drinking for six months. I am not going anywhere where I could run the risk of drinking. I'm just not doing it, so straight away, cool. On the flip side, it didn't mean I isolated myself totally. I found people that were on the same wavelength as me, people that liked to train, people that did like goofy movies, people that did like fucking goofy music, people that like enjoyed the same things that I did. And they were some people that I might have worked with. It was maybe people that I would speak to on Facebook. They would reach out to me about like my progress and I would just create conversations with them and, and basically talk to them about life. And um, they'd be like, oh, it's so nice to see that you're doing so well. you progress so much. And I would actually just say at points like, do you want to go get a coffee? Do you want to go for a walk? you like it's okay to make new friends <laughs> you know so once i started to make all these changes i started to drop the fat as a byproduct of just making these changes because i was in such a bit of headspace i was in so much more control um and i'd already set the intention that this wasn't about me getting ripped in six months <laughs> yeah. that was the difference is like that intention behind it which is on the flip side we'll get people that come to us that have been in that cycle for so long And I've seen it in in people as well. You were obviously one of them. I want to lose five stone in five months for my wedding. Six
1: (laughs) months. Come on, I was giving myself six Six months.
0: months. (laughs) I realized when I said five, that I said it was actually six. But like people that are that focused on just the end result, they've got a very big lack of awareness as to the kind of key drivers and key components that are actually driving this behavior, which makes it more difficult because it means that there's more frustration and there's more volatility that could lead to that same cycle reoccurring when we're trying to take them through the process of healing it, when you're just focused fully on the result. Because see if you're focusing on like, I want this off in a particular time frame, that's stress enough, right? That is stress. What we're trying to do is reduce the stress actively in every area. What we're trying to do is understand the trends of eating. Like, as I said, are you a weekend binger? Are you someone who... Says that food is good and bad. So you will only eat particular foods, you won't eat other foods. Are you someone that tracks your calories obsessively? Are you someone that um potentially feels as though they can't eat in front of people? Like that's disordered eating as well. Like I can't eat in front of other people. So then go home and binge out, all that stuff. We need to understand the trend. But see when people are giving us feedback and the trends not what it usually is because they've got this additional layer of pressure of i need to lose a certain amount of weight in this time it's not showing the usual trends because the real trend here is actually driven by the need to get the result within a particular time frame instead of actually focusing on improving the issues that are driving the relationship with food so it comes to intention like the questions we ask our clients we will literally be like okay so what is the key drivers here who triggers you who can't you be around who do you need to be around more what things do you enjoy just for you could you go and like if someone says they fucking love dogs could you go and volunteer with dogs more often i've never thought about doing that like i don't know if i've got the time you can make the time for something you enjoy see if you took away this toxic behavior that was driving the binging driving the overeating driving the disordered eating and you replace it with going and volunteering with fucking puppies if you love dogs That could that be a solution? You know, these are things we need to uncover, but people are sometimes afraid to because, again, of what we've already discussed like the validation, then the need to be liked, the need to be included, the need to be flexible. Like, see that, like, some things will work for some people and some things won't work for others. We've had clients that go through these kind of disordered eating patterns that have been like, well, everything I've read and everything I've I've um, researched says that you need to include all foods. And I'm like, 100% you do. And they'll be like, so why are you telling me I can't have these foods at home? And I'm like, the reason why I'm telling you that you can't have these foods at home is because when you're emotional, you are just going and you're scanning all that food. You're not even thinking about it. You're consuming so many calories in a short period of time, you're not even enjoying it. And it's because you're trying to escape from regulating the emotions you're feeling. So as a result, you can't find a new coping mechanism, but see if you've got nothing in that chocolate cupboard and you go and open the chocolate cupboard, you have to stop and go, why am I here? Yeah, Because you just automatically go to it before. So if they can stop and go, why am I here? Fuck, I was just about to eat a full packet of biscuits. Why? Why was I about to eat a full packet of biscuits? Okay, this thing pissed me off. So what could I do instead? And that's when we'll start to ask them about coping mechanisms, give them examples and so on and so forth. And the issue why the why that's a continuous theme and why they need to remove it. And again, it will be person dependent is because once they consume that food, the judgment of themselves will be so great that they will not have the awareness to understand what happened on the lead up. So fucking that's why just because you read something online or some people say it doesn't mean that it's generalized for everyone. Like I said, me and Jen had two two totally different um, intentions. We've had to go through things in some ways differently. And we've also had hugely different experiences as to why we came to that point in the first place. So things are going to be massively different for people.
1: A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And I honestly think that people only hear what's been taken away, right? So they they only focus on what they have to take away and not what needs to be added in, right? You have to add in therapeutic outlets, coping mechanism. Fun shit, right? Yeah. To your life. Otherwise, you're focusing only on more things that have to be taken away, removing your only method. If food is your only method of joy and comfort and you take it away, those emotions need somewhere else to go. You need another outlet. And spoiler alert, the gym isn't enough, right? Oh. So you kind of just decide, oh, I'm going to swap fucking binge eating for going to the gym. That's you, you you just taking a veiled approach to using exercise as a weight loss tool because, spoiler alert, we've done it too, right? So see the minute you say to me, oh, I'm just going to stop fucking binge eating. I'm going to stop snacking. I'm going to go to the gym instead. Like, I know your shit. I can fucking see through that veil, right? Because I've told myself that lie many a time as well. And this all comes down to your ability to show yourself compassion, right? Mm. And I think sometimes when people talk about, I think Gene speaks really well about self compassion because it's not that fucking fluffy fucking go for a bath and do a face mask shit, right? Like no. it's not. It's about you finding what it is for you. And I think you you have to understand that recovering from from binge eating, in my experience, was about adding more joy in than I was taking away. Yeah. And really giving myself an alternative to eating the full packet of biscuits, right? Because even now to this day, I still won't buy a packet of biscuits for the house, right? Yep. Now, I know that I probably wouldn't eat the full packet. I, I genuinely probably wouldn't, right? There's something there for me about what it represents. And I know that probably sounds a bit daft. There are other snacks I have in my house all the time, right? And and if I'm feeling particularly emotional, stressed, sleep-deprived, I just won't, Um I might send Paul to the shop to get me a fucking crunchy, right? I, but other than that, right, like I won't, um, it, it, it's just, it, it's what works for me. It's it's unique to me. I'm still in recovery for my relationship with food um, and it just helps me be more mindful about my choices so that I'm having a crunchy when I want a crunchy instead of having four because there's four in the cupboard. And um, it's, controlled.
0: it's controlled. That's the most yeah, important thing is like yeah. you have control
1: over it. And I think that for me, I think they've happened in tandem for me. I think that like... Recovering my relationship with food uh, and then losing weight, but then the relationship with food wasn't actually recovered because I put weight back on Yeah, has helped me to recognise that they have to happen in sync, I think, before... I thought that going on a fat loss journey was going to recover my relationship with food automatically. And it definitely did to an extent in the sense that I wasn't really focusing much on the fat loss. I was definitely focusing a lot more on my own personal development. And it was learning actually to put myself first and prioritise me and not be a people pleaser that really, really helped quite a lot in my um, recovery from the relationship with food. I put weight back on which told me that there was still underlying issues and they were all linked to trauma, to be honest. So that then gave me an indication of where I had to do more work and that's where I've been doing more work. And now over time, weight's coming off again really easily. And this is so bizarre, right? Because for somebody who has struggled and battled with this their whole life, from the outside looking in, you would probably make an assumption that I'm really struggling with this and actually it's so fucking easy now because I've recovered so much of my emotional ties to food that I can make objective decisions in the moment. Yeah, And if I do overeat, I look at it through an objective lens and not through the lens of the judgment that I felt for myself because so often when I did overeat in the past, there was so much shame and guilt that I couldn't see what happened. So when you were asking me, like, what led up to this, I'm like, I don't fucking know. Like, I was numb. And I think because of what I experienced, um, like from an abusive perspective, a lot of the time, I won't go into details, I don't want to trigger any, but when you're experiencing particularly traumatic events that happen in a, in a domestic abusive relationship, a natural trauma response is to dissociate. So your mind pretty much detaches itself from your body. Um, and I would instinctively go into a dissociative state, dissociative state, like probably every day for about a year of my life. Um, so I had become really, really. Un- I unconsciously would just put myself into a dissociative state when bad things were happening to me that, that I then did that same thing when I was overeating so it was really really hard for me or when I was binge eating so it was really really hard for me to pinpoint what led up to it and what was happening in that moment because my mind and body were so disconnected from one another that it was like being an autopilot it was like numbness it was like I couldn't remember the event because I was so detached my mind was so detached from my body so, I think for me now, it's been like, how do I reconnect my mind with my body? And like, physical performance goals have been a huge part of that. Like, not exercising from a weight loss perspective, but like using exercise as a tool to build mental resilience and strength, right? It, that's been a huge part yet for me. Um, that oh. I didn't expect it to be. What were you going to say? What did you say? Sorry. Built for life. Exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> and I think like, really been able to reflect on my behavior from an objective standpoint and get the facts Mm -hmm. and then use the facts to make a change um that's behavior change theory in a nutshell but now that the emotional part is being dealt with only now am i able to do that
0: yeah and and the thing is like the the funny thing about it is that you're adhering to lower calories probably than you were ever on previously because you you've actively said because when you put the weight back on after your wedding i even said this time around like i'm only putting you on that if you promise me you can manage it like i don't want you shitting me and mm-hmm. you were like god oh, genuinely feel different and what you've been adhering to those calories about 80 percent of the time for the last like what two months and you're like two stone down yeah you know, and you're like i'm not even hungry this is the difference like before you were on maybe like three four hundred calories a day more yeah and where you were like you're still eating sufficient enough but just now it's just based upon your current weight your activity. You can. Eat more calories to still be in a deficit. But if you want to speed it up, you can go further into a deficit. But it's now that your food choices are, are made objectively and not completely from emotion. You know that there is scope because you've created that larger deficit. That if there's anything you want to have, you can have it without having too big of an impact. Yeah. But you know that you've got rules around when you do that. So it's like if it happens one day, I can't have two days when I do it back to back, all of this sort of stuff. Like you can use yeah. strategies because it's less emotional. And right. The results are, are happening. And that's why now, even like me going through this process, like cutting down from my wedding, this is why I'm running like, we're running anywhere between like 28 30 miles a week, doing like 15k steps per day. I do eight training sessions a week just now based upon training for IROCs, resistance training runs, and I'm sustaining 2000 calories. The fat's going off rapid, but I'm not even hungry. You know, yeah. I'm not yeah. hungry yet because it's not emotional. Yeah. Why? Because the environment's in place.
1: And I think like we we really did the work to be in a position that we can know our numbers without being obsessed with our numbers. This yeah. is a huge component of it. Like I think, particularly with the people that we work with who are coming to us with disordered eating patterns, they initially come in being obsessed with the numbers. Yeah. So we have to remove the numbers from them entirely yeah. in the initial stages. Um yeah. to to just help you not recover fully because I think I think losing weight as a byproduct is a sign. That you are recovering your relationship with food for, for okay. a lot of people for some people not but for for us, for us particularly it definitely yeah. wasn't for, for a lot of people we work with it is um but i think removing numbers even as a concept to redefine your relationship with food right and redefine your understanding of your trends your habits your behaviors your decisions around food so that when you are in a position for numbers to be added back in it's a it's a case of understanding input versus output as opposed to obsession over different things that you're doing and i think dependent on the severity if you have an eating disorder that's a whole different ball game like like that has to be you need the help of a professional and you definitely can't be playing around with numbers in that that case but i think we were coming in with more disordered eating habits and i think a lot of people we work with it's not yet the full-blown eating disorder but it's disordered eating habits therefore the approach is very much like remove those numbers entirely until we help you to stabilize and then we can have a conversation about what you want to work towards
0: yeah we, we actually had a client that came in last year and she initially told me i don't want to try calories because i come become obsessive and i was like right cool so we started to lay the foundations due to these habits and there was a lot of frustration for a couple of months because we'd set targets of like this is what you could lose but we also weren't tracking calories. We were trying to improve our relationship with food and she wasn't hitting those numbers yet. And I was like, but it's fine. Like Those are the maximum numbers we can hit. Like we are just trying to get patterns and stuff now. And um, it got to the point where actually she laid the foundation so much that she came to us and was like, she came to us and was like, I think I can start tracking calories again. We never pushed her. She she came to us and said that. And ever since she's been flexible. She's She's what, like 12 kilo down? Like she's, she's doing great. So things can change drastically. And the thing with people like her and also the other clients we work with alongside um, in similar categories is that we genuinely want to celebrate the food that they eat. Oh, yeah. Like this particular client had just recently went away and we were like, we, we help them with strategies with everything. Like, I think a lot of the time and why we're different from other coaching programs is we have strategies for whatever situation you are in. Literally, like, say if you want to go on holiday, we have the emotional, mental, and physical side of things taken into consideration and delivered in such a way where you can think about your approach so differently based upon what you want to get out of the experience. And this is what other coaching programs, I believe don't do because it will just be like, you're going on holiday, maybe just try this, just try and rip the arse. Could you stick to prime when you're away? I've heard like all this shite, we love to give such a different perspective based upon the way that people are feeling. Because if they can feel like they're enjoying their food when they want to have the food or have the alcohol, then it's going to make them feel more in control and it's going to keep them feeling better about themselves. So she was away on holiday and she's like, well, I, I, when I go away, I, I've got these specific places I'm going in these days that we've been booked for ages we're buzzing for it. And I'm like, okay, so how can we move things around? Do you want to move things around? Do you want it to be a holiday where you just go and you enjoy yourself? You don't worry about anything she's like no i still want to like progress through it i want to like at least maintain and i'm like cool so this is what we have to do these are the changes we have to make but send us pictures of that food because i want to see that shit not
1: because, 100%.
0: Not because we want to see it out of i need to keep an eye on you more so let's celebrate that food you're eating because it looks fucking dynamite <laughs>
1: like because we love food right so not only not only are we pure fucking nosy and want to see what you're eating right so that we can rule over it but also I want to celebrate with you that you can order that food eat that food and enjoy that food yeah and we are helping you to understand that there, there is no need for any shame and guilt here. We're here to celebrate this together yeah. and redefine all of those emotions that you would have had eating a meal like that previously. We are helping you to set now a different intention behind this. And also we love drooling over nice food.
0: <laughs> show me a cake, show me a quatern, show me fucking a good steak any day of the week and I'll be fucking yeah. I, I'll drop my I'll drop my pants for anybody that does that. <laughs> It's <laughs> like <laughs> so even last night, Joanne came back last night and she was like, Oh, I think we're getting something tea now, like towards the end of the plane journey. It was like tea, coffee, and like lemon cake, and she she was like, Um, always oh, lemon cake, so I never got it and I done like, did you put it in your bag? And she was like, <laughs> She was like, What? And I was like, Did you put it in your bag? She done You love no. a lemon cake. I fucking love anything lemon, and I was like, Are you kidding on? Did you did you not put that in your bag for me? And she's like, Oh fuck off, you tramp. And I was like, I'm seriously annoyed. <laughs> Why would you not give me that lemon cake? <laughs> I
1: know. So, Next time I've been a flight and there's lemon cake, I'll put it in my back
0: Bag it, bag it. Um, <laughs> but let's let's round off there, because I feel like that was a lot. I feel like we could actually go into two di- different episodes on this. Oh, totally. um, and if you guys have found this helpful, please let us know. Please give us feedback, because we'd be more than happy to really go into it in more depth and more detail, because it's so, it's so fucking complex, to be honest. And it's really comprehensive in the way that we could approach it. Um, so if there's any more specific questions around it any feedback that this has helped even your own experiences we would love to hear them please reach out please let us know and please just tell us if we're hitting the mark with what we're talking about we've had some great feedback so far but we just want to make sure everything we're doing is is relevant absolutely
1: yep. absolutely see you next
0: so, week team. yep see you next week team have a good one and um yeah please
1: share <laughs> subscribe <laughs> <laughs>